a synth-laden track that will force some self-reflection. A song that's so much more than the soundtrack to an 80s teen movie. And a remarkably relatable song about loss. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives, brought to you by the online music school, Soundfly. I'm your host, Carter Lee. So, since we just released a course on synths over at Soundfly, we decided it might be fun to do an episode here on the podcast with the theme, Songs with Iconic Synth Sounds. So the one downside for me personally is I am no expert in the world of synthesis. A lot of my experience with synths relates to maybe taking my Moog subfatty out on the road or just tinkering around with my microcorg. I knew for this episode we had to have a couple of heavy hitters in the world of synths. And I'll tell you what, heavy hitters is who we've got. So joining me on this episode are Nir Russell, a remarkable songwriter, producer, MD, vocalist, and keyboardist. She's released several albums of original music, both in art pop and contemporary classical styles. She also writes for TV and film, and you can hear her original song, Winter Won't Stop, on the feature film Feel the Beat on Netflix. Also joining me is John Hall, the head of production here at Soundfly. He's directed, produced, filmed, and edited more than 50 online courses, including courses made in collaboration with major partners like Carnegie Hall. John also has an incredible background in engineering and production. He's helped produce music for ads for major brands like Coca-Cola, Google, and he's mixed major film soundtracks such as the indie hits Experimenter and King Jack. So as always, we get into all kinds of stuff on this episode, and because we're talking about synths and synthesis, it might get a little technical at times, maybe a little heady. If you feel lost at all, don't worry. We've got you covered with our free podcast companion course over on soundfly.com. If you want to dive a little deeper into the synths that we're talking about, or even just learn a little bit more about the tracks that we've chosen, go check out that free course for additional lessons, creative activities, and even more info on everything we discuss on this episode. So without further ado, let's get into the episode, Songs with Iconic Synth Sounds. Just to kick things off, I was uh, curious, what got you interested in synths or synthesis in the first place? Let's see, I was uh, born to a father who had a DX7 back when uh, it was released. I got started um, in the workstation era, you know, I still have my original Motif ES, you know, my first uh, teenage record. That all got uh, um, sequenced and, you know, tracked and arranged and produced on the Motif. And then I transferred that over to the AW16G. And I would say that my my start in synths was actually more so the digital workstation world specifically. And then I, I went to college not for synthesis, although I wish in retrospect that I had been more aware of that program. <laughs> what it what so did you cool. major in? I was a uh, classical composition, actually. Uh, oh, wow. That was my first my first record and my first career was uh, contemporary art music, art songs in the classical style, and also piano voice performance. So I sort of had that four years where all mm-hmm. I could really do is just stay in the acoustic world. Then moving to LA, I got into the touring industry as a, as a live musician, mm-hmm. and it became almost immediately apparent that number one, programming my own sounds was going to be essential, and number two, running playback and doing Ableton work was going to be essential. And so, you know, luckily I did have a head start in patch matching and, and sound design, but, you know, I had to really hone that quite quickly. And so that's been a big part of my career. John, um, your start with synths, what, what got you going, man? Oh, man. Um, I came to the synth world a little bit later. Uh, growing up, did like the band thing in school, but mm-hmm. um, I, I got I to ask, what music were you making with your band in school? Because no, knowing you, I, I can't. Like, well, was, like, I mean, imagining? I was talking about like, you know, high school band, like playing, you know, I was the tuba player. So, <laughs> uh, in fifth Not what grade, I was picturing. I wanted to I was play. picturing like a garage rock band. But, uh, <laughs> well, that's still cool. Eventually, like I got into guitar, and that nice. you know was like I was obsessed with 
Rage Against the Machine and Tool and Nine Inch Nails. And the first thing that kind of happened was I was on this art and music camp and my friend had like a PowerBook G4 and it had GarageBand on it. And um, the whole trip turned into what can I do with GarageBand on my friend's laptop when he'll let me use it. I think the next year, as I was like applying for school, one of my my buddies went to App State in North Carolina, and he was going to do music technology there. And I applied there, and uh, I also applied to University of North Carolina Wilmington um, because my other, you know, nerdy love was like biology mm-hmm. and stuff. So I wanted to do marine bio, <laughs> uh, and I lasted one year there, and I transferred to Berkeley. I didn't really dig into the synths until. I heard BT's dynamic symmetry. Sorry, not dynamic symmetry. BT's This Binary Universe, which has a track on it called Dynamic Symmetry. And that record cracked open the world of electronic music for me. In researching him, I learned, <laughs> I learned about Berkeley at that point. And I was like, oh, uh, what's this? Oh, this is really cool. I could go learn how to make music with synths all the time. I think I'm going to go try this. So. I applied and I got waitlisted because I was a pretty crummy guitar player <laughs> and uh, got in by the skin of my teeth on the waitlist. That's way cool. Like I got hip to Berkeley because I was into dream theater and that's, what, <laughs> that's how I came to it. And I've told that story on another episode, so I, I won't. I'll spare you guys the details, <laughs> but why don't we jump into a tune? I'll kick things off. I'll show you guys the tune that I picked. Uh, And just to get us into it, why don't we have a little listen to the start. Marco uh, and his track "Chamber of Reflection." Um, had had either of you heard this track before? Uh, just now? Nope. No. No. Which is awesome because we're talking iconic synth patches, yeah. and I'm over two. <laughs> My favorite thing is but, that your first choice was 1999. <laughs> are, are either you familiar? with much of uh, Mr. DeMarco's catalog. No, it's one of those names that I, I have heard forever, and so I believe that he's an icon to someone. So I'll, I will tell you guys a little bit about Mac DeMarco then. We'll, we'll go to school on, on Mac here. So this is uh, Chamber of Reflection. Uh, it's from Salad Days. It's his first like full-length feature, I believe. It's, uh, he had re- released two EPs before that. This record was written entirely after he was on the road for like a year and a half. Um, it was recorded entirely uh, uh, in his Brooklyn apartment in bed There are some really awesome... I would recommend to anybody that, that wants to get to know him and how he makes music a little bit more, checking out his documentary Pepperoni Playboy. It's on <laughs> YouTube. It's totally free to watch. It's pretty weird, but uh, definitely goes into his music making Sounds process. Sounds pretty like, weird. It, it's, it's extremely weird. My name is Mac, and welcome to the studios. I'm the head tech of this studio. They call me the Don around these parts. You know, in me starting to make the case for this being an iconic track, it's iconic, and, and, and Mac, as a bedroom producer, quote-unquote, is, to me, synonymous with that, with that term. Like, all the music he makes, even to this day, his most recent uh, release. He just records it all at, on his own, never shares it with his band or his manager until it's done. He's just in by himself making this music. And I think that, you know, that style of music, and you guys totally push back on me on this, but I think is also really closely related to synths and synthesis, like being able to have, maybe you find a, a thrift store find, or for me, like the microcorg, and you just find those sounds and you're digging into this stuff or finding very cheap VSTs 
because of a space thing too. Like maybe I'll just have a, 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 a software synth that I don't need to worry about taking up a ton of space in my tiny room making music. I find that that has really influenced that style of music. Yeah, I mean, I think the the quintessential bedroom producer I have to call out is Image and Heap. Yeah, um, totally. I mean, there there are so many great examples. You know, I, I think a lot of that sort of started with with her. I did want to mention so about Salad Days, this record. I guarantee if you were within earshot of an Urban Outfitters, you heard the song Let Her Go. Like within the last five years, you definitely heard that song. Why I love this record, like the difference between making a record at home on your own and making the record at a studio that's costing a lot of money, uh, either for yourself or the band leader or the label that's paying for it. Um, I've seen like both ends of it and it's a far more stressful process when you're at maybe a big name studio and and you're on somebody else's dime as opposed to working as a bedroom producer working with your own sounds being able to just discover something new discover something new in these synths that you're digging into or maybe other instruments uh, is just something so beautiful and i can't imagine somebody like mac making a record any other way i feel like that's one of maybe the un. I don't know if it's necessarily like a, an unfortunate part of the bedroom producer thing, but you have to be, there's something nice about having the pressure of like, this needs to be done in this amount of time. Otherwise you're just, I mean, I suffer from this. I just, you know, play with the sound all the time. (laughs) Certainly at the, at the, I don't know how, if it's both been the same for both of you, but the start of the pandemic, I was like, you know what? I got all this music I'm going to get done. This could be a positive thing. And that lasted for like a month. And now we're like month six. It's like, oh man, I got to finish those tracks. I said I was going to finish. Need some deadlines. Yeah. 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 Yeah, We're to the point where I'm taking that into my therapist. That's like, it's like becoming a pathological issue. (laughs) Oh man. Um, Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully we're out of it one of these days soon. Um, Let's talk synths though so there, there are two main patches one of them is a dx7 nice. so i'm very very stoked to get into that that lead line that's a juno 60 uh it's very likely his his tried and true juno 60 obviously manufactured by roland uh, uh between 1982 and 1984 i feel like this is like a book report or something yeah. <laughs> <laughs> guys. Uh, but it is an analog subtractive synth so you start with a waveform and then you kind of peel away, right? You, a waveform generated by an oscillator and then you're kind of shaping that sound by pulling different frequencies and parts away from that. Am I in the ballpark of subtractive synthesis? Yeah, definitely. It's, you start start harmonically rich and then remove or subtract frequencies with a filter. It's pretty close then. Awesome. Um, so its predecessor was the Juno 6. Uh, the key difference really that I found was that the 60 actually allowed you to save and reuse sounds. So with the 6, it was like, here, here are your sounds. If you change anything, just remember what you did. <laughs> I remember, you know, when you mentioned your 106 earlier, I remember being in Brooklyn in like 2011, 2012, looking at 106s on Craigslist that were going for like 400 or $600. Right. <laughs> right. And wow. now they're like 1200 1500 like they're just exploded. Yeah, whereas the 60, yeah. I mean, I think is the 2000 range. Yeah, that's really blown yeah. up too. Yeah, exactly. I saw that the 60 is like 2000 to 3000 now. And yeah. when it first came out, it was 1800. So it didn't stray too far from its original list, which is a lot different than when we get to the DX7. But the 60 was like super widely used on like 80s pop stuff, Flock of Seagulls, Aha, like all the, you know, the usual suspects from 80s synth pop, Cindy Lauper, Wham, the Eurythmics, it, the 60 definitely featured on a lot of those tracks. Sweet dreams are made of these. Who am I to In an interview that Mac did with Reverb.com, where he was talking about how he learned everything that he knows really about synth and synthesis through using his Juno 60. Um, it's really just plug and play, and he was able to discover a lot of really cool sounds. Both of those units have uh, a chorus built into them, which is like part of their sound that's so iconic. I would venture to say that the 106 sounds like absolute without the chorus on. <laughs> <laughs> Could very much be my inability yeah. to program a decent sound, but... 
But I guess like the, the thing with chorus, you know, as opposed to vibrato, since you brought up that term, I mean, vibrato is like, is a pitch variance. But my understanding of chorus, as John said, is that it's multiple pitch variances with a slight delay. So it's like sort of a more complex vibrato, you know, but with the 106, at least, I think the 60 is a little, uh, a little more of a rich sound. But the 106, I find to be kind of brittle um, on its own. And with the chorus on it, it's just like so much more pleasing. Otherwise, it's sort of like sticking a needle in your ear, which I personally <laughs> don't enjoy. <laughs> as far as this specific patch using the Juno 60, it's playing the lead line. Uh, but I also want to show you guys, it does play some stabs kind of more towards the end of the track. Those stabs were a really nice example of timing the delay to your track, or timing, not the delay, timing mm. the DK, timing to the, the yes. release to the track. You know, like yeah. you would like you would time your reverb tail of a snare to a half note or let's say that was sort of this, a similar thing it was released to a half note um that's a nice little thing that i think not everyone pays attention to how it ends they all want to know how the sound yeah, starts yeah <laughs> so the the dx7 is playing the pads throughout now we're talking iconic there are some iconic presets on the, on the dx7 uh i think it could just be straight up the organ preset the uh the base one preset on on the tx7 is amazing it, it you, you'll know it from uh, aha's take on me um kenny Loggins' danger zone a little more history on the on the old dx7 it was manufactured between 1983 and 89 it's known as the very first successful digital synth so the the 60 obviously analog here's our first successful digital synth Originally cost around two grand. I was seeing around four hundred and fifty, five hundred dollars. Certainly a, a very popular synth and was competing with with the big synths of Roland in the eighties. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like it was head to head against all these big analog poly synths that were like one knob per function. What I know they were trying to do was just like, how can we release something with polyphony that's not going to cost four thousand dollars. I mean, you also have to remember that it's FM synthesis, which it's funny. Right. It's funny you mention that it's uh, that you're referencing presets. Like you turn on the thing, and the first sound you hear. I mean, FM synthesis is like no joke, and you can get templates. You can get like diagrams of uh, the algorithms to like make your own sounds. But like actually, just like winging it in a DX7 world, I mean. I personally, like, do not touch that. <laughs> yes. I don't know many people that do, you know? What you're about to hear is a milestone. We are proud to present the Yamaha DX7 and DX9 programmable digital synthesizers. Let the performance begin. So Yamaha flooded the market uh, with a plethora of low-cost FM synths um, in the 80s. In 87, it released uh, the DX7 II, uh, though it did not match its predecessor's success. There's something like 200,000 units of the DX7 sold uh, during its its production time, which is incredible. Like the the Moog, the Mini Moog Model D, in an 11 year period, sold like 11,000 units or something like that. Mm. That DX7 sold 200,000 units in like four years. Hey, folks, it's me, Mejia. Pardon the interruption, but I want to let you know that if you found the last couple minutes particularly interesting, you should check out Soundfly's course, Advanced Synths and Patch Design for Producers. Advanced Synths and Patch Design for Producers will give you techniques and strategies for understanding and creating the sounds you want to use. From epic house leads, to snarling dubstep basses, to vintage 80s keyboard sounds, we'll show you how to make patches one step at a time. By the end of the course, you'll have a stronger sense of what type of synth to reach for in any situation. Whether you decide to go through things on your own using Soundfly's content subscription, or sign up to work with a mentor during a highly personalized one-on-one -on -one session, you'll be encouraged to put your skills to work even while you're honing them. And hey, if synths aren't what you're into, that's okay. 
We have lots of other courses and a whole team of expert mentors covering a massive variety of topics. Everything from improving your mixes, to writing a song from scratch, to being a stronger band leader, and much, much more. And as a thank you to our listeners, Soundfly is offering 20% off any monthly or annual subscription to our incredible course content. Just enter the code THEMES at checkout. Take a big step toward reaching your musical goals by visiting soundfly.com today. So the melody and harmony of this song are taken directly from Japanese artist Shigeo Shikato's song, The World 2. Now, those are the same melody. <laughs> They're the yeah. same chords as well. There is, I, I did a deep dive. I was like, okay, I, I'm not going to say that, that Mac DeMarco stole this melody at all. I'm going to see what happened. There are some Reddit comments. They're like, oh no, he totally thanks Shigeo uh, Shikato in, in the hard copy. I have the vinyl of this record. There's a thank you note in a picture in the middle of the record that says thanks to a bunch of people and you see Shigeo in there as well. So there is a thank you. That note though that I saw, I was like, no, he thanks him for his permission and everything. I did not see anything about that. So the harmony of this track, it, in classic Mac DeMarco fashion, it's tuned a little weirdly. It's in between tunings. I'm just going to say it's an E minor, maybe in between uh, E and, and E flat, but E minor. Um, the changes are really just A minor 7 to B minor 7 to C major 7. And then it does the same thing repeated and lands on E minor 7 instead of C major uh, 7 going through the changes. So just your 4 minor, your 5 minor to flat 6. Classic, classic progression. 4 minor, 5 minor to 1. This this song is so short lyrically, but there there's some, some really kind of interesting things I found about it. There's a concept called the Chamber of Reflection. Uh, and this is from an interview with Pitchfork. He says, it's like a meditation room and they lock you in there for a period of time. The purpose is to reflect on what you've done in your life already and move on from it. So like super weird. I don't know anything about Freemasons. I'm not going to dig into that. But the making of this track is certainly that Chamber of, of Reflection vibe, right? Like he's, he's in his room, he's making music, he's just gotten off tour uh, for a year and a half and he needs some time by himself, a little bit of solace to make some music. And, and reflect a little bit on, on things that he's done in his life. So Why don't you tell the folks listening what uh, what track we just listened to? Ah, what a magical song. That was <laughs> In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel, the great Peter Gabriel. Um, it is off of his So album from 1986. I mean, this is a, a classic album. It's a classic song, in my opinion. I had the great fortune of uh, flying out to London in 2014 to see the, the So reunion tour. He brought oh, wow. back the original band and did it at Wembley Arena. Um, so I'm I'm a big Peter Gabriel fan. You know, I, I grew up with this on. I think I had it on cassette, vinyl, and CD at one point. Um, you know, it's <laughs> just in case. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm in, uh, born in 1988, so gotta kind of cross all those paths. But um, honestly, the the main keys part is is i think iconic it's very recognizable technically yep. not a synth it's an electroacoustic instrument it's a cp80 um mm. but also i think layered with a synth pad so you know let's let's count it um <laughs> but yeah <laughs> but to me it's just one of those songs like i still hear it all the time in its normal form and in its many comedy parody movie whatever iterations and uh mm. Yeah, I, I had to talk about it. What maybe got you into into Peter Gabriel? Um, yeah, was 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 it something? You, was he somebody your parents were listening to, or you just found uh, found his music on your own? Yeah, as I mentioned before, my my dad was uh, I was homeschooled, and so I was sort of in this um, in this house with my parents 
all the time, only listening to what they listen to. And fortunately, mm-hmm. they listen to really great stuff. So I, <laughs> I grew up with their record collection. And um, Peter Gabriel was a big, a big piece of it. Um, I don't know how much this is known, but Peter Gabriel was and, and is a huge innovator um, of technology in music and audiovisual. I mean, his video for Sledgehammer, which is the biggest mm-hmm. hit off of the So album, is still... Yep. I just found the fact it's still the most viewed video in MTV history, if you can believe that. (laughs) So yeah, a lot lot of the stuff he used on here was like prototypes. You know, for example, he has a Fairlight CMI on this. Um, He actually used it more in his third record and then kind of got out of it. But while Peter Gabriel didn't do everything himself, there's still like this 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 Mm -hmm. element of like pushing the boundaries, but also just making really great music that 99 percent of listeners like have no idea what's going on. (laughs) But if you really care and you really want to know, you're like, wow, that's the first time anyone had ever heard that sound before in 1986. (laughs) Like how freaking cool. It's so awesome. I, I do want to address the say anything moment. <laughs> yeah, song, I hope that's in my notes. Because <laughs> I feel like that's the elephant in the room. And that is partly a big part of why I chose this song actually today. I mean, obviously as a as a synth player and pop musician, there's lots of songs out there that I could choose. But but there's something about the aspect of In Your Eyes, this song being made into such a cultural parody by mm. way of the say anything moment that um, is such a pet peeve of mine because I think the song is so incredible. And yeah. I, you know, I, 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 I don't know how often, you know, every few weeks I feel like I see it in a Saturday Night Live skit. It's been in, mentioned in South Park multiple times, The Simpsons. My personal favorite, which I did approve of, was Deadpool 2. I thought that was a pretty great use. Um, but it's such a profound love song. And, you know... It got chosen for this Cameron Crowe film by way of yep. uh, what I understand was kind of an argument over it. Um, and then, boom, like Peter Gabriel and John Cusack and all of the late 80s, whatever generation that would be. <laughs> it's just like yeah. it's forever sealed in this moment. And I think it's such an interesting example of like, I um, I don't know that I've seen that whole movie. It certainly is not a scene that that sticks in my mind. The album, you know, and the artist is like unbelievably rich to me and it's so interesting how um certain sounds like just the intro of that song you play the intro Mm -hmm. and i would guarantee that most people would be like oh that's that 80s (laughs) rom-com song from that movie you know and i had to do a google search right to i wanted to find a clip and i my first google search was peter gabriel in your eyes movie came up with, like, two Reddit posts. I did say anything boombox scene. I mean, a million, you know, every video (laughs) clip, everything I wanted to know about this. Just nameless, faceless. It's just the song. Um, So I talked about the the intro, like, the the, uh, iconic sound itself is probably a CP80. There's no... um, It's really nice liner notes for this album. They're very specific. And most of the tracks, they specify that Peter Gabriel played The Prophet, which was The Prophet 5 at the time. And on this track, they specifically do not credit that. Although I would have guessed, easily guessed, that that was the underlying pad. Um, But they don't credit it. They just say synthesizers. And piano and Fairlight (laughs) CMI. So your guess is as good as mine. It's some sort of warm analog pad that everyone loves. And... The other thing he's credited for keyboard-wise is playing the CMI, which my understanding is that it was an additive synthesizer. And so instead of, you know, taking a source sound and chipping away at it, they would add overtones Mm. to it. Ultimate result was didn't sound very good, and so they added a sampler function. And so that was what Peter Gabriel really got into, um, and his uh, this album was co-produced with Daniel Lanois. Um, and I think he also did work with Brian Eno quite a bit. Um, so, you know, there was there was some masterminds behind this. And I just watched a video that's pretty great. Um, and I can share the link. But it's Peter Gabriel in a junkyard trying to bust an old television to record it 
for a sample for the Fairlight, and he can't do it because apparently they're really tough to bust. So he's just like hitting this TV in a junkyard with a microphone <laughs> unsuccessfully. TV smash. Take one. One, two, three, four. Right. <laughs> Take two. A bit more force. One, two, three, four. Here, what I think is the CMI at the end, there's just a little like sound design that you can't really attribute to any other synth at the at the the tail end of the chorus. Love that modulation. I know, I'm about pretty, to address that, you know I am. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that modulation, I, I'm calling it modal interchange, personally. Because yep. um, yep. it's, it's, I didn't even like catch on to it till I just plunked it out on the piano to figure out what the chords mm-hmm. actually were. And the verses are such a like standard pop progression. You know, you've got that one chord first inversion, which is like every pop ballad ever. Mm-hmm. Um, the pre-chorus... You know, it's all like it's all in D. It's all just like pretty standard stuff. Um, yeah. And then and then it hits the chorus and it goes to a two major chord. If you're in the key of D, it goes E F sharp minor A first inversion. So it's sort of like very ambiguous about mm-hmm. you know where we're actually going. But what I love about it is that it does that shift and it also goes along with an instrumentation shift. And you might notice. That the synth part, the CP80 part, is gone, right? You don't hear that sound. Right. The pad is gone. The CP80 is gone. Um, there's that plinky thing, which I think is a guitar, because every live video is, is a guitarist playing it. Um, and that bass line, that is a really, you know, hugely prominent bass part. And it's also uh, mm-hmm. uh, Manu Kache and drums, um, and also talking drum. Which Whoa. brings us into the West African influence of this song. That's sort of the uh, right. the surprising right. thing. And um, I've seen his his like live DVD things back when Paula Cole was in his band, and I guess that'd be the early '90s, mid '90s. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's like a whole extended version of this song, multiple extended versions of this song, like seven, eight, nine minutes. There's an extended LP version, um, and this version they all feature a Senegalese singer. Uh, named Yusu Endure. And apparently he's the most famous singer in Senegal. There's all this like West African stuff going on. Um, there's the talking drums, there's West African rhythms, there's an actual West African singer singing mm-hmm. in its native language. And even the lyrics I learned um, are, it's a romantic song, it seems to be about love, but apparently there's a concept in West African tradition where love of your woman and your God are sort of mixed together as like their one experience. And so his lyrics are sort of vague in the sense of, of subject, like they could be a woman, they could be God, we don't know. Um, and that was sort of a borrowing of that tradition as well. So yeah, a lot, of, awesome. a lot of cool stuff that, you you know, we just listen to it yeah. and we're like, whoa, it's like so big it, and cool. Yeah. There's, so <laughs> There's much like so too. much going into it, you know? Kevin Killen was the engineer on board and also has the mixing credit. And what I think is really cool about this track and the whole album is that uh, my understanding is that Kevin was present throughout. He was the engineer of the sessions and then also mixed it in the same studio with Daniel Lanois and Peter Gabriel producing and David Rhodes on guitar as part of the writing process. All that to say is that, like, you know, we had people at the best of their craft on the scene from moment one. And I think you can really mm-hmm. hear that in the sound design. And I think even when you're a bedroom producer, you know, I try to approach mm-hmm. this myself, like this, this, the, source sta- the source sound from moment one can make your mix or break it. And I think this is yeah. a really great example of getting the sound, getting it unique, getting it rich and beautiful and meaningful from the starting moment. And then, you know, theoretically it mixes itself. 
Absolutely. Fantastic point. I actually have a question for you. I, I love asking uh, other artists. Is there a track of your own or, or anything you've done that you can directly see a through line to this track influencing it? <laughs> it's funny. I I have this back burner project of doing library music and I want to do a library library music album that's uh, called Analog Dreams. It's like 80s references. Nice. And I've only done one track and it was my In Your Eyes emulation track. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I, and I, so, yes. I love it so much <laughs> that I like already can't do anything with it because I'm obsessed with the sound. <laughs> and it'll probably never hear the light of day. But yes, I have one song that you'll never get to hear. What is that? Woo, wee, woo, wee. <laughs> that that little sound that's moving around? Yeah, it's like a, a self oscillating filter that he's just sweeping back and forth, like performing with it. Nice. I think. Uh, I think. I can't verify <laughs> that at all. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, John, uh, would you mind telling telling everybody that doesn't know? And, and I don't know LCD sound system nearly enough uh, as I should, but what, what we're listening to. Yeah, this is um, Someone Great by LCD Sound System. And mm-hmm. uh, it's funny because I didn't know a lot about them either coming into this. And um, I had a really hard time with the, the email that said, like, pick an iconic synth part. I just was like completely overwhelmed and, you know, is it Van Halen's jump, which like, or like my brain immediately went to like giant synth sounds that everybody's like, oh, I love that sound. Yeah, of course you'd pick that. So I, you know, kind of went through what I'd been listening to on Spotify and um, came, came across this song and several other LCD songs. This actually came out in 2007 on uh, the album Sound of Silver. And uh, this was like their second record. It's funny because like at that time in my life, I probably heard this everywhere. And just kind of like, it wasn't something that really resonated with me then. And like finding out more about this track it, when it came out, it streamed on their MySpace page for a couple of weeks yeah, before the release yeah. and afterwards. And I thought that was kind of like something funny because I do remember like, you know, you go on bands, MySpace pages, and that was a really strange way to consume music. Ultimately, The Sound of Silver was nominated for a Grammy uh, in 2007 and lost out to We Are the Night by the Chemical Brothers. What was iconic about it to me was trying to like just find a song that was like full of sounds that I love Mm. and that were like really kind of exciting to me now. I didn't probably give this the time of day uh, because I was kind of young and I thought it was cheese. And then I like grew up and now listening to it the way that the lyrics hit me, it's completely different. I think I told you this the other day, Carter, but like I was listening to, you know, Raffi Baby Beluga for like the 400th time <laughs> in a day and was like, I, don't I have remember to, I have to change. My son has to like listen to something else now. And this, this was like one of the first things that like popped into my head to, to put on was Sound of Silver. One of the fun things about digging into this was like finding out kind of how much James Murphy, the, the front man of the band, doesn't really like unpacking the meaning of Mm. his songs and lyrics. Um, Mm. So it it kind of feels a little funny to try and do that, but we'll do it for you, James. Yeah. (laughs) We'll, we'll give it a good shot. And the research that I did, it's, it sounds like he, 
you know, dedicated a lot of this album to the passing of his therapist, who was somebody who convinced him to kind of like stop being afraid of like following through on making music that you love or that you're proud of, even if you feel uncomfortable. And I think that's a theme that plays out in this. And he talks about frequently in his interviews. And I think we all kind of struggle with that, especially that bedroom producer mindset of like just finishing something. Uh, yeah. being afraid of, oh, I feel uncomfortable about my vocals or, you know, I'm not the best keyboard player or whatever. So this song, a lot of people guess is about his therapist. He's never said who it's specifically about. That second stanza in particular is the one that like really hits me. Um, because like if, if, I mean, when you lose somebody and you get that kind of like midnight call, uh, yeah. or, you know, I wake up and the phone is ringing, surprised us it's early. And that should be the perfect warning that something's wrong. Um, to tell the truth, I saw it coming the way that you were breathing. As you know, I've, you watch your parents grow old or your grandparents grow old and you kind of like see someone's health beginning to falter. Um, it's, it's really strange to like have such a stark and somber vignette against this kind of like bubbling synth marchy thingy um, that's going on. So just that juxtaposition is super interesting to me. Um, I also thought like reading through, and if you think about it through the lens of, of somebody very close to him passing, which again, maybe that's not the case, but if you do think of it that way, there's all the like minutia that he's talking about, like the coffee not being bitter, the weather is great. But then you look at it through the lens of like, how real it gets when you do lose somebody very close to you. And it's like, everything should be as dark as I feel right now, but, but it's not. And that's weird and uncomfortable, you know, like that. It, it was just really cool to cool's not the right word at all, but it was just really well, kind of profound yeah, to look it, at it that way and see it. Like that's, it's taking just a, a very heavy experience and, and relating it to something that's, you know, it's an everyday thing. It's something we all go through. I also really appreciate how, just like direct and kind of stark the imagery is it's not there's no like flowery writing here i love it too as somebody who doesn't unpack lyrics very well at all (laughs) so it's like this is exactly what i'm talking about guys so yeah take it or leave it yeah exactly love that but you know one of the big sounds for me um and it's really kind of the only one that I can say that I was able to identify through research is that first sound that you hear those, that kind of pad sound, the chord sound that is just kind of like a stack of oscillators. And as the song develops, you hear those oscillators kind of move around. Um, And it's a, an EMS synthy a, which is kind of this quirky, I've I've only really recently started playing around with Arturia's emulation of it, but it's got like a pegboard matrix where you route things via these little pins that you stick in a board. It's like it's a wacky wacky tool, but he cited it as his like his one thing that he takes everywhere when he's producing somebody new. Um and one of the coolest things about it is this XY joystick on the right side. So as you listen to, you know, when the, the first, I guess, verse drops in, um, you hear those oscillators kind of shift up. He's taken each oscillator and put one on the X axis the pitch and then the other oscillators on the y-axis and he's got oscillator three static so he can basically like fling that joystick around to create interesting moments and changes in pitch of those other two oscillators and then snap them back into that original like perfectly in tune spot i think it's really effective it has this kind of like constant bowed string thing of just like Mm -hmm functionally it, I, that's what it, my mind goes to but it also reminds me of james blake's uh retrograde when those those saw waves like converge i 
Also, I love basses that just are so rich and wide in in sound. It's not just yeah. the subbiness. It's just like we got we got some bright stuff too for you. Like that's fantastic. You know, as a former tuba player, I have to say how much <laughs> I love this bass part. I'm not sure what he used for that. Uh, it definitely kind of has like a Rolandy sound to me. That's sort of like, I think it's a square wave on top of a saw wave. I'm not 100% sure. I tried to like mess around with the Yuhi's Terrell N6, which is kind of, I think like a Juno 106 type of emulation. And I, it's just like a little bit of detuning on that second oscillator to mm-hmm. get that nice smeary, wonderful sort of section sound. I think in the the bit that you just played, the middle voice of that sort of droney synth that we've just been talking about is just like uncomfortable at mm. times, and it's kind of like the the one thing in this whole sort of very consonant you know synth world that's like kind of grieving, um, and I think that kind of lines up with that that lyric that you cited earlier a bit about like the whole world is just kind of going on about its its stuff and you're kind of like in the middle of it just trying to figure out how to deal with it i think we touched on this at the top of the podcast but is there anything that comes to mind as to why you know so many of the great diy bedroom producers like their their main tools of the trade seem to be synths like it's it's always something that they can go back to this is just a complete and utter guess love complete and utter (laughs) guess go for it i think one of the the reasons like the DX7 was so popular and why, you know, a bedroom producer might like gravitate towards a single synth in particular as kind of like their go-to tool is because unlike a trumpet, which is a fantastic instrument, it's got limitless timbres and textures and functions that you can get out of it. I mean, I I feel like there's also, you know, a lot to be said for for computer music, which, you know, isn't necessarily directly talking about synthesis, like we've mostly been kind of swapping notes about hardware synths, you know, most of which have have piano keyboard interfaces. But one of the coolest things to me is both in hardware and software, like how much synthesis has revolutionized the concept of music, the, the conceptualization of everything from theory and rhythm, mm-hmm. you know, harmony, like it never ceases to amaze me how I, I learn like how some people approach music making, you know, and they have like, you know, and I, I think there was sort of a phase and I don't know if we're out of that now. There was sort of a phase at first was like, well, they don't even know what a major chord is, you know, but <laughs> but I mean, it's it's honestly really incredible what you hear and you're like to us, you know, you've got like. Uh, you know, minor third over a major chord, and you're like, that's wrong. You know, you need yeah. to learn. But it's also, you know, as a as a as a former and and sometimes piano teacher, I'm always amazed. Like kids who don't know, you know, about theory yet, they'll come in and they'll be like, this sounds good, you know. And I'll be like, well, you know what? It actually sounds really cool. Like you're right. I would have never put that together, but you're right. You know, or how many times mm-hmm. a student will want to like do odd meter and they have no idea what that is. Mm-hmm. All all that to say is like, um, like the different timbres are really cool. Yes, and also like the interfaces. Like you know, I just finally got a Mother Thirty Two, and I'm already freaking out because there's no keyboard on it, <laughs> and I'm just like, yay! There's <laughs> buttons that are shaped like a keyboard. Thank goodness. But like a lot of you know, I feel like there's a lot of people out there that just like they become experts in synthesis and maybe yeah. don't even have you know, like I have a a classical piano background. They might not have that, and it's a lot mm. of times the coolest stuff. Like I envy that freedom from traditional music theory and like standard, you know, voicings and all that. It's really interesting. The one thing that maybe I'll say is like, especially for people that are encountering software sense for the first time, or, you know, are on the beginning of their journey, like initialize the patch. 
and start experimenting with what each kind of knob is doing and trying to kind of create frameworks for yourself to understand what's going on. One of the really terrible things about software synths is the presets that you pull up and just like everything moves and you have no idea why it's moving or Mm -hmm. like what's routed where the modulation matrix looks ridiculous. Um, But if you can just like start with like one sound generating source and then, you know, subtractive synth would be a great place to start and just start understanding like what the filter is doing to that source and then start understanding how you can modulate the filter and then start understanding like how you can modulate the overall contour of the sound after that and uh just like keeping it really simple and basic and realizing how many of the sounds you're hearing in records are pretty basic Mm -hmm. they aren't like these really complicated presets that have like reverbs and phasers and flangers like built into them that are going all over the place it's like normally just kind of three oscillators that are tuned a little bit differently (laughs) So I don't know. I would say just initialize a patch on a basic subtractive synth and and realize how much power there is in that. Awesome. Awesome advice, guys. Uh, Nira, is there any new music that you have coming out that uh, you could share with our listeners? Um, I wish I could say yes, but <laughs> I am also terrible with deadlines and have no idea <laughs> when I'm going to have anything. I mean, I guess, you know, I do have... Uh, my first major film and TV placement is out on Netflix. It's a movie called Feel the Beat. If anyone has nice. kids, it's a very family-friendly movie. Nice. And uh, I have a song that um, I did bedroom produce all, my, all by myself, start to finish, that is uh, the dance competition finale scene. Um, so that's a that's a fun little thing. That was an exciting piece of, nice. of this year. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and yeah, I, I am working on new stuff if I happen to get anything done by September 30th. I'll let you awesome. know. Mm-hmm. Even older stuff, we're more than happy to, to check yeah, it out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, have, any, I have an EP on, on Spotify, and I'm now nice. a title a title user. So Spotify and title and all the other stuff. Uh, John, anything uh, that you would you would like to plug at this time? I know you're you're making some new music. We put out that very small course recently. Uh, that's uh, advanced synths and patch design for producers that I'm I'm really proud of and. I really loved making that course. It was so fun to like dig back into a lot of, of just kind of the, the technical side of things. Um, but also just like make a bunch of really awesome patches that I think people can learn from. Um, we don't just unpack the patch. We also unpack the part and kind of how that fits in. So you, you walk away knowing more than just like how to make a patch. Um, yeah. Which I think is really great. Yeah, man. But, you definitely poured yourself into that course and it and it's just an awesome, awesome feat. It was uh, so much fun. I want to make another one. <laughs> but <laughs> uh yeah. Right that's, on. that's about it for me though. And that's gonna do it for another episode of Themes and Variation. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our guests, Nira Russell and John Hull, for bringing their synth knowledge to this episode. I would be totally lost in that world without them. And of course, we want to know what songs you love that feature some iconic synth sounds. So there is a link to a Spotify community playlist in our show notes. Feel free to add your selections there. And if you have any comments or questions or themes you'd like to suggest for an episode, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at soundfly.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new theme.